and welcome to the Alien Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we're looking at Minute 39. It begins with the scanning chamber door closing, and it ends with Ash assuming that the facehugger is feeding Kane oxygen. And we are joined once again by West Anthony. How are we doing today, West? Just great, thanks. Thank you for having me. All right, so what do we make of this uh, this medical chamber, this space MRI unit here? It's uh, it's kind of interesting to me in that it doesn't really explain much of what it is or apparently doesn't really give you much of an attempt to uh, replicate any sort of realistic technology. Am the, I wrong about that? The video screens are just as crappy on this as the ones that the helmet cams were sending back, I think. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But there are there are symbols around, right? We got more symbols. Well, there was one that we missed in the last minute, uh, semiotic standard that we missed, that we had ended up having to talk about off mic in between episodes and decipher what it was. It was so hard to see. But right above the uh, the bed that Kane is laying on, directly above his face, uh, you can see a sign. And after after looking at it for a while, I think that we've concluded that it's laser. It is the sign for laser. Now, what do you think they're going to do with a laser? And is the laser contained in that sort of console that's above them? Or? Yeah, is that, is that the cabinet he goes to when he goes over to the instrument cabinet? Well, the, the sign is above the bed, so it's hmm. not on the instrument cabinet. So I don't, it, I don't know what it is. It's a very strange... Maybe uh, the thing that's scanning him that drifts across him is some kind of a laser. That, that could be. I mean, it could it could just be a very general sign for like maybe we're trying to place too much uh, too much of a specific meaning to the sign, but um, it could also be the tool that Ash is going to eventually use to try and remove the face hugger. It could be trying to take that that one of its legs off with uh, with a laser, but I don't yeah. know. I'm I'm trying to think because I'm I'm not looking at the scene at the moment, but I, I can't remember if that device that he's using is maybe attached to like a. Uh, a wire or a cable or a hose or something that's coming out of the top of that area where you see the little uh, uh, laser logo. Or if it's something that's not attached to anything and he just pulled it out of a drawer. It, it could just be that, you know, warning, lasers will be used in this area. It could just be something that simple. Oh, well, yeah, it could be that too. Like, you know, just, I would think then there would be a lot of signs for a lot of different things they might be using, but... Flamethrowers, flamethrowers <laughs> flame th- flame all over. And there's one. There's a sign behind. You know, now that I look at it, there's a there's one behind the crew outside in the corridor as well. And that one, I believe, just is for pressurized area. It's just a simple white with a red border around it, and I think that that's what that is. And that's probably everywhere inside the ship, besides an airlock. I would imagine that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? Now looking ahead a little bit, uh, is that uh, I do see there is like some kind of a cable hanging down when uh, at, at the moment when Ash is gonna is gonna try and remove the, the the facehugger. So I think yeah, there's probably a laser that's connected up above, and that's why they have that. Oh, you're there. right. There it is. Yep. So so it's they keep it up there, and it's it's hanging down from that, and so yeah, I think that's that's where it's coming from. It is, not it. A wi- it is not a wireless laser that he's using. It is connected into that. Okay. Well, we got to the bottom of that one. So I guess we can move into the minute then. Uh, we've given Ash and Dallas, have given Kane their, their space MRI, and they're looking at the screen. And what are they talking about, Mitch? 
Well, they seem to they they seem to see that it's going down his throat, and and Ash posits that maybe it's feeding him oxygen. But nevertheless, we know the things the thing is now down its throat, and I don't know that we've ever been a hundred percent clear on that. We've known he's had this thing hanging off of his face, but now that sort of um, bodily violation that uh, we were talking about last week has taken one more step, and you realize that um, this thing is is actually inside inside of him now. Uh, which is pretty unsettling notion to anybody. Yeah. So they should freeze it right now. Right now. <laughs> Let's freeze. I'm going back to the freezing plan. Yeah, it's just increasingly weird that they don't do it. But then again, uh, Ash's reluctance to to do anything that would be safer for everybody except the facehugger just makes him increasingly more and more suspicious. Of course, the, the misdirect here could be that he is a science officer. We've seen we've seen Kane behave. Fairly inadvisably due to extreme curiosity. So we might just be seeing it, you know, one could deduce that that's what Ash is doing here. He's a science officer. He wants to know more. He wants to be careful. He's rationalizing it that way. I suppose if you don't know what his intentions are ahead of time, you buy it. But I don't think Dallas buys it. I think this is our first hint at Dallas not exactly buying into Ash's character and and showing that he doesn't trust him. Did you guys get that reading from this scene too? Yeah, because I can't rationalize anything that Ash is doing. <laughs> Any, anything, short, anything short of freezing Kane, I, I, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And yet it's never brought up again, is it? It's very strange. Parker has this great idea. It's too good of an idea, so you better keep moving, keep this story moving along <laughs> right. so uh, nobody thinks about that until they drive into, go into their car in the parking lot after the movie and say, why didn't they just freeze him? You know, the movie would be very short. It would be over. It's because, remember, Ash is not doing it. And again, this, this sort of speaks to the growing suspicion about him that goes as, as the film progresses, and it becomes clearer that he's behind uh, some stuff that's going on. So it, it kind of makes sense from that standpoint, I think. And I, and I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that we need, they want to plant that seed because, Mitch, if, if we're talking about wanting us to wait the refrigerator logic, if you will, wait till you get home and open the fridge before you ask the question, then why would they have asked the question themselves? I think that they're really planting a seed here of suspicion, but then moving past it as quickly as they can so that you don't completely, you don't figure out the mystery too fast. But also what's good about that is that you know, there's, there's really a double whammy working there because you do have that gnawing suspicion that grows and grows that Ash is, uh, is up to some naughtiness. And then, of course, eventually that does transpire. You do, you do find out that that's what's going on. But you're nevertheless not aware that he's not a human being. And that's, that's where they really put a sucker punch on us. You know, Wes, I want to ask you a question about the fact that there continues to be no music, no underscoring at this point. Do you think it has to do with some kind of equation with uh, movies are more real if there's not if there's not music playing underneath it that somehow it creates a an, a sense of naturalism to the proceedings which are out, out pretty outrageous to begin with? It could be that that's actually a pretty good idea uh, that you've come up with. Uh, I hadn't really thought about it that that much because uh, Ridley Scott just. Overall, just never seemed to be a person who was that, uh, that he didn't seem to care very much about music as much as he cares about the visual element throughout his films. I mean, you look at all of his films, visually speaking, yes, of course, he's a, he's a master stylist. Uh, his films are always uh, really splendid to look at. 
But as far as the music goes, uh, there's not a whole lot of instances where the music is like really super special or memorable. And I don't, I don't know if that's sort of a thing where he just doesn't necessarily care about the music or if it's a matter of him not wanting the music to take away from the visuals that he is coming up with. There's a quote, actually, let's see if I have it here. Ennio Morricone was uh, being interviewed by The Guardian, and there was a thing that, that uh, he said, and I, and when I, as soon as, he's, as I read this, this quote from him, here it is, uh, I immediately thought of Ridley Scott and Alien. And this is the things I'm just going to throw out there. This is Ennio Morricone. Saying, there are some directors who actually fear the possible success of music. They fear that the audience or the critics will think the film has worked because there was a very good music score. Now, I don't know if that's, that really applies to Ridley Scott, but I just, you know, when I think about this and I think about, you know, the whole debacle of, uh, of legend, uh, you know, later on, and when I think of how in general, I, I cannot really put my finger on any really fantastic film score in any of Ridley Scott's films, except for this one where it was more or less chopped up and pulverized. I, I can't help but wonder if maybe it, not necessarily there's, there's a fear going on there on the part of Ridley Scott, but it's just more of a situation where he's just so much he has so much more invested in the visual element than than anything else. Well, it's hard for me not to then jump immediately to Gladiator, which is this incredibly overstated score. You know, I mean, it's a it's it's pretty much wall, that movie's almost wall to wall music and it, and you notice it all the time beginning to end but is it that good no i mean that's the thing i i think that that's a perfect example of you know somehow bludgeoning the audience with this with a score that yes has maybe a memorable little theme to it but um but yeah i, I think it may speak again to this kind of either misunderstanding or lack of interest in in that in that auditory aspect of of of, of storytelling yeah, and, and, and just recently, uh, I, I'm not sure how recently, I believe it was a composer named Harry Gregson Williams. I think, I seem to recall he was complaining about his music getting chopped up in a Ridley Scott film. But, uh, and so it just seems like he just doesn't have very much respect for it at all. And it's a, it's, it's a real shame. I think, and one of the most uh, egregious uh, instances of that is coming up in the next minute. But uh, while I've got everybody uh, thinking about it, the, the ending of the movie is where, really, he dispenses with Goldsmith's music entirely and takes a music from a, uh, a, an American composer, a 20th century American composer named Howard Hansen from uh, his uh, second symphony. He's a, Howard Hansen was an American composer. He won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, his music was used at the end of this movie in, in the final scene and over the end credits without his permission because, as it turns out, he was still alive in 1979. He died in 1981, but he was still around and he wasn't too keen on Ridley Scott using his music in this movie, but he didn't do anything about it. So and then another kind of uh, uh, interesting uh, alien connection. And I don't mean alien in term, as the film. I mean, aliens as in people from outer space. Uh, apparently, John Williams modeled his score for E.T. on Howard Hansen's Second Symphony. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> that's that's kind of a weird thing. But OK, look, here is the music that Jerry, uh, Gold, Jerry Goldsmith composed for that final scene in the movie.
That's great. And this is uh, Howard Hansen from the, uh, I believe, the first movement of his second symphony. this music a lot but this is definitely not the music that was composed for the end of this film uh, it, the, the, yeah the Howard Hansen symphony it's very lovely but what's wrong with what Jerry Goldsmith wrote yeah and I, I mean and I can see similarities I can hear similarities in terms of a certain mood so it almost really does beg the question like it's not like you're getting something that's that significantly different by opting for you know, for not using the the composer of the of the rest of the film score. Yeah, it's just you know, again, it was something that uh, you know Terry Rawlings came up with for the temp track, and everybody was crazy about it, and so they just they just stuck with it. And again, it's it's used for the uh, the, the final scene of the film, where Ridley has finally defeated the alien, and then she is going to go to sleep, and then uh, it's used again over the end credits. And, and the for the end credits, Goldsmith did create an end theme, which reiterates the main theme that you would have heard at the beginning of the film if they'd used it. It's very strange. Yeah, I, that's the first time I've ever heard that uh, Goldsmith, you know, the version of, the, the, of that last scene. And I've always felt a little bit at the end of the movie, while I'm deeply satisfied with how the, the story culminates, I've always felt like that last moment where she goes to sleep and then the credits felt a little bit like an afterthought. It almost feels like Okay, now we're done. Let's go. And I wonder if that's partially because that score is just a the score as is is a little underwhelming, especially in comparison with the Goldsmith uh, version. So I'm with you on that. I think that's a, I, that's a beautiful piece of music. Yeah, and the music for the the end credits that Goldsmith composed again it it restates the theme that he created the melody for for the, the begin that he created at the beginning of the film over the opening credits, but then it also sort of shifts it into less of a minor key and more of a major key. And it is definitely more of a definitive ending over the end credits as well. Because again, the Howard Hansen one, it's, it's very lovely, but it's just kind of meandering and it's, it's nice. And I don't know, it doesn't necessarily fit for me. Goldsmith was, you know, as a composer, I'm sure he is trained in, you know, coming up with with themes and knowing when to use them and when to deploy them and when to to create variations on them and when to, you know, use them, you know, use them in a way that you're setting something up and then using them in a way that it pays off at the end. As a composer, he's creating a work that will create that will contribute to the arc of the story. 
and the filmmakers don't seem to have any appreciation for that. And they're just tossing things away and chopping them up left and right uh, willy-nilly to whatever suits them. And, I mean, look, Alien is still a classic. It is a classic of of science fiction and or horror, but I can't help wondering whether or not it might have been more successful if they had deployed Jerry Goldsmith's score as it was originally intended. All right. Does anybody else have anything else for this minute? No, as we leave Kane in bed, we'll go on to the next minute, and then things are going to get really interesting. Yeah. Wes, did you have anything else? No. Uh, oh, well, you know what? Let me, let me just say this about since we've been talking about Ian Holm, who I, I love. I love him in this movie. I love him all over the place. And it occurs to me, there, there are two lines that Ian Holm has said in two different films, both of them howlingly insincere, that I will say to people uh, under certain circumstances in a similarly insincere fashion. And, of course, one of them is in this film. Uh, I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. It's just, <laughs> it's just such a great line. And, and the other one, uh, this line, I don't know if you'll be able to guess what this is from, but it's just such a great line that he says, I accept your condemnation. Does anybody know where that comes from? No, not off the top of my head, no. It's uh, Another Woman, a Woody Allen film from the late 80s. And he plays Jenna Rowland's husband, and she's sort of a a frustrated uh, uh, psychiatrist or psychologist. And and Ian Holm plays her husband. He's just a very uh, supercilious, passive-aggressive guy. And he just says that line. He says like twice in the film. And it's sort of like, I accept your condemnation as sort of a a prototype of sorry, not sorry. And just smack him (laughs) in the face. (laughs) I love it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for minute number 39. Uh, Tune in tomorrow for minute number 40. Uh, You can find us at AlienMinute.com or follow us on Twitter at AlienMinutePod. You can also join our Facebook group and tell us everything we're doing wrong or give us some great compliments as well. Or you can go to iTunes and uh, subscribe to us there and the Stitcher app as well. Uh, Wes, you want to remind them where to find you? Uh, you can find my podcast, Musical Notation, at BattleshipPretension.com, where I'm part of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. You can download it uh, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play. You can follow that show on Twitter at NotationPod. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. West Anthony. And, and now that I think of it, I keep forgetting it because I'm not a big fan of Facebook. But, yeah, I'm on Facebook as well. You can search Musical Notation, and there is a page for my podcast that's on there as well. All right. Well, thanks for listening and tune in tomorrow for minute number 40.